Well, good morning, everyone, and also Happy New Year to you today. We say um, happy at the beginning of every new year because I think, honestly, we hope that this year will be a happy one. But of course, just because the calendar has turned from one year to the next doesn't mean we are suddenly or automatically happier this week than, say, we were last week. That's because our circumstances probably haven't changed that much in one week, uh, and we probably haven't changed that much in one week. So if we want to be happy, really happy, it's going to take more than just the arrival of a new year in order for that to happen. turns out that what drives happiness is more about what goes on on the inside of us than whatever's happening on the outside of us. It is so easy for us to pick up an idea in our heads or a habit that tends to drag us down and robs us of the happiness that we pursue. And these accumulate on the inside over time, and they tend to warp our perspective on God, on who God is and what He wants and how much He loves us. It warps our perspective on ourselves, and it warps our perspective on our world and what's happening around us. So happiness, if it's really going to occur, it requires a kind of an internal reset for us in order for that to occur. Now, reset is a term that's most often used in technology. You know, your phone or maybe your computer or your DVR uh, gets frozen or it stops working and you call tech support, and the first thing they're going to tell you to do is reset the device. I mean, maybe it just needs to be turned off, turned on again, unplugged, plugged in again. You know, that's a soft reset. Or maybe it needs a hard reset that requires the device to be uh, returned to its original factory specifications. Now, it turns out that this reset idea is not only needed in the area of technology. As people, we often get stuck. We often kind of freeze in life. And we try to fix ourselves. We try to do a number of things, but nothing seems to work. And what we really need is to push God's reset button and return back to the original specifications under which he created us. Now, we didn't roll off a factory assembly line, of course. God, God made us. He created us. And as such, he designed us to work a certain way. But we all tend to come up with different ways of doing life, with our own way of doing life. Maybe it's a popular way. Maybe it's something that we've come up with on our own. But if it's not what God has established us to operate on, it, it just doesn't work out well for us over time. So we need to be reset. We need to go back to the specifications under which we were created. Now, resetting a person is not near as easy as resetting, say, a cell phone. That's because we don't have reset buttons that we can just push and we're good to go. We have, instead of buttons to push, we have decisions to make. And there are four reset decisions that get us back in line with the way that God has designed us to live. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this new series as we kick off this new year. First decision is we need to reset our past. The second decision is we have to reset our minds, the way we think and the way we perceive things. And then thirdly, we need to, we need to reset our relationships. And then lastly, we have to reset our priorities, what's important to us. Now, these are the four major areas that we tend to design our own way of doing life, and therefore, they, they keep tripping us up. And these are the areas that we need to get reset on. So I can think of no better way of starting this particular year than to push these four reset buttons. Because 2020 created a lot of challenges, but particularly in these four areas. Now, the first item that needs to be reset we're going to look at today is our past. We must reset 2020, maybe even further back than 2020. 
Now, we tend to think that time is just something neutral. We just kind of pass through it unscathed. But it turns out time, us moving through time, is kind of more like a, a pelican moving through oily water. You know, we've all seen images of pelicans or other wildlife that have been caught in the path of an oil spill. And whenever these animals pass through that oil, uh, it sticks to them. And it doesn't just wash off. It doesn't just rub off. It needs to be removed. And if it's not removed in a timely manner, it can be deadly for these animals. Now, that's, I think, an image of the way time is and the, the impact of sin on our life. The wrong that we do to others and the wrong that they do to us is kind of like a, a giant moral oil spill. And it makes for a very toxic environment for us. So much so that we really can't even make it through a single day without picking up some of the effects of sin. And it just sticks to us and it bogs us down. Now, sin tends to adhere to us and collect on us in two forms. First is guilt over the wrong that you've done. And second is bitterness over the wrong that other people have done to you. Now, most people just respond to guilt and bitterness by trying to keep soldiering on, just just keep moving forward through life. But that never removes the sin. And therefore, over time, we tend to just collect more and more guilt and more and more bitterness. It just kind of layers on top of us. And as the years go by, we tend to wonder why our heart is getting so heavy and why there's so little joy in life. And the reason is, is we're kind of like that pelican trying to fly, but we're covered in oil. We just can't get off the ground. The oil has to be removed. The, the sin has to be removed from our life. The question is how? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, the guilt side, removing your guilt. This addresses the wrong that we do. Guilt is our conscience reminding us of the wrong that we've done. Now, people respond to guilt in many different ways. Some choose to just ignore it. Some try to justify it or excuse it. Others try to pay for it by doing enough good deeds to hopefully make up for all the wrong that they've done. But there's only one reset button that actually removes the guilt of our sin, and that is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't just wave some kind of magic forgiveness wand over our sin to make it disappear as if it's never happened. No, he actually paid the price. He paid the death that our sin deserves by dying in our place on that cross. Now, many of you know this, and many of you have asked and received the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you and for me. But my guess is there's many times where you don't feel forgiven. You still feel guilty. Why? Well, one of the reasons is pretty obvious, and that is because you keep sinning. I keep sinning. And we're not alone in this challenge. The Apostle Paul, who was the first century church planner and ended up writing much of the New Testament, experienced this too. In Philippians chapter 3, one of the books in the New Testament, Paul was writing about his deep desire to become more like Jesus Christ, to be perfect, sinless like Jesus was. But after describing his desire, this is what he says in verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. I haven't arrived yet. 
or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Then he kind of restates it in another way. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is such a helpful set of verses about how to respond to the wrong that we keep doing. Paul's saying, I wish I could be done with sin, but I'm not. I'm not arrived. He said, I have not obtained it. I have not been made perfect. Later he says, I've not taken hold of that goal yet. Now, there is a kind of reset button for sin, for the guilt of our sin that needs to be pushed. We need to ask Jesus to forgive us and decide to follow him. And in that moment, his sinless life is applied to our sinful life, and we are forgiven. At that point, we're forgiven. But if we want to experience day after day the joy of that forgiveness, there's more than just a button that needs to be pushed, a decision that needs to be made. There is an approach, a reset approach to life that Paul's talking about here that we need to practice. What he's saying is, having been forgiven now, you need to look forward, not backward on your guilt. If you keep looking backwards, you're going to keep feeling guilty, not forgiven. Now, many Christians tend to push the forgiveness button. They ask Jesus for forgiveness, but they then don't change their approach. They keep looking back over the wrong that they've done. They keep wallowing in the guilt. A very helpful phrase that I came across several decades ago that describes what Paul is talking about, kind of summarizes it in just a few words, is this. Confess and press on. It's a great summary of what we need to do again and again and again. When we've done wrong, we need to turn back to what we've done. We need to confess it. We need, we need to admit the wrong that we've done. If we've wronged someone, we need to tell them and ask for their forgiveness. We need to ask for God's forgiveness. If there's something that we need to do to make it right and we can, we need to do that. But then having confessed, then we turn back around and we press on. Confess and press on. What we tend to do is confess and wallow. We need to confess and press on. Paul describes this approach this way. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is the that for which? In other words, why did Jesus take hold of you and me? Why does he reach out to sinful people like us and, and grab a hold of us? Well, it's not only to forgive us. It's much more than that. If that was all he was intending to do is just forgive us, then, then why not, as he's grabbing a hold of us, just yank us out of this world before we have a chance to commit another sin? Well, it's because it turns out we are not the only ones in need of forgiveness. We are surrounded by people who need the same gift that we've received. And so having taken hold of us, having forgiven us as we reach out to ask for that forgiveness, now, God says, now you get to be a part of my mission. You get to be a messenger for me of this forgiveness that I'm offering the world. But if we keep looking back in guilt, we're going to miss the opportunities that God is sending our way because the opportunities come this way. And if we're looking this way, we're going to miss 
the whole reason that God took hold of us is not just to forgive us, but to be a part of what he's doing now in time. And if we keep looking back, not only are we going to miss the opportunities, we're going to be miserable in the process as we look back and wallow in our guilt. Now, this looking forward, not backward, is not automatic. It's not an easy thing to do. It requires a lot of focus. Paul describes it as the one thing I do. That doesn't mean he doesn't do anything else in his entire day. What that means is he's saying, this is at the top of my list. I have to keep moving this up in priorities if I'm actually going to do this. This can't be a pastime. This can't be something that, oh, yeah, right, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I've got to, this has to be at the top of my list. Otherwise, I'm going to find myself looking backwards. It takes no effort to feel guilty. That's automatic. It takes a lot of effort to keep looking forward and accept the forgiveness that's dealt with the past. Paul calls it straining towards what's ahead. So not only does it require focus, it requires just a lot of effort, a lot of thought, because our mind just naturally gravitates towards guilt. It takes no effort to feel guilty. That's automatic. But what Paul is saying here is it does require athlete-level focus to turn away from guilt. That's, that's a lot of effort. That's what he's talking about when he goes on to say, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is using the image of a runner in a race who has one objective, and that is not just to finish, but to win the race. Now, the point that Paul is making is not that we need to try to beat everyone morally this year. That's, that's not the point. The point is we need to bring athlete competition-level effort and focus into resetting our guilt. That's what's required. I mean, I wish there was just a simple physical button of some court, uh, kind that we could just push and our guilt would just be done with. But it's not that way. Jesus is the answer to our guilt. But when we cry out to him, it's kind of like the, the sounding gun starts and the race against guilt begins. And if we choose just to enter the race and then we sit down on the starting line and we don't run the race, guilt's going to overtake us. We have to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. The sounding gun starts, and then we need to run. We need to press on like an athlete in competition to keep straining towards ahead and not letting the past keep dragging our attention back. We've got to keep looking forward. So that's how we remove our guilt. We accept Jesus Christ, and then we strain towards what's ahead. What about our bitterness? Removing your bitterness. This is the second point today. So guilt is about removing the wrong that you have done. Bitterness is about removing the wrong that's been done to you. One of the clearest verses on this is Hebrews 12, verse 15. It says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. How does the wrong that people do to us turn into bitterness? Well, whenever we are wronged by somebody, we feel it on the inside. We feel pain. And that pain comes from something real. It, it, we've been cut. There is a wound now on the inside in our soul. And like a physical wound, this invisible internal wound must be properly cleaned 
and treated. Because if it's left untreated, this internal wound will become infected. And the word for this kind of inside infection of the soul is bitterness. That's what wrong, improperly handled, turns into. It turns into bitterness. And like infection, it just spreads through the body and does all kinds of damage. But the problem is many people, whenever they're wrong, their first response, maybe they've learned this growing up, maybe they've been in environments that teach this, their first response is to try to ignore the wounds that have been inflicted on them. Now, partly you understand because it may just be too painful to even talk about it. The area is just so painful, they, they, they just don't want to deal with it. Many people don't want to deal with the pain of cleaning the wound. I mean, if you have a physical wound, it actually feels worse to clean it and dress it. It feels better, at least initially, just to leave it be. And this is what we do with our internal wounds, it, to bring it all up and to talk about it and to think it through and to try to apply the forgiveness that needs on that, it, that, that is even more painful. So many people just don't want to clean the wound. So they just put a Band-Aid over it and they say, oh, you know, it's no big deal when it actually it is. No worries when there actually is something to be concerned about. Sometimes we think we can just dress it once and clean it once, treat it once, and then move on. But often the kinds of wounds that are inflicted on us by other people are deeper than we think. Many of them need to be cleaned and redressed often in order to prevent infection. Now, there's only one substance with the power to clean the wounds of our soul and to prevent bitterness, and that substance is the grace of God. It's the exact same substance that forgives our sin. Grace is applied to us when God forgives us in Jesus Christ, and we apply it to other people when we forgive them. Now, there's a link between these two. These two applications of God's grace are often linked together. They're not just separate. So what often occurs is individuals who struggle to accept the forgiveness of God also struggle to offer the forgiveness of God. If they don't apply it to themselves, they certainly don't apply it to somebody else. So what often occurs is guilt and bitterness reside in the same heart. And bitterness usually is what you see on the surface. Because most people don't want to walk around talking about how guilty they feel. So what they do is they walk around expressing how bitter they are. But what really drives it down deep inside is they have never really completely accepted the grace that God gives them. And therefore, they have a hard time giving it to anybody else. These two are linked together. It's impossible to offer the grace that you have not really received. Now, just like it is or was with guilt when we talked about that, what you decide to look at, the orientation of your life, forward or backward, makes all the difference and is the key to removing bitterness. That's why it says, see to it, at the beginning of this passage in Hebrews 12. What that means is, look diligently. For what? For God's grace. You're not going to trip over grace. You're going to have to go looking for it. And if you don't look for it, what it says in this verse is you're going to miss the grace of God. Jesus paid for it. It's going to be available to you, but you just are going to miss it. You're not going to use it. Now, pain 
has the ability to alter the way we perceive life in at least two ways. It, it changes what we look at, what we focus on, and secondly, it changes how we perceive life, how we look at life. So whenever someone wrongs us deeply, they and what they have done to us often becomes what we look at, what we think about over and over again. We replay what they did, and we rehearse ways that we can get back to them and, and make them pay for what they've done. And just like it was with guilt, bitterness changes the orientation of our life from forward-looking to backward-looking. In guilt, we look back on the wrong we've done. In bitterness, we look back on the wrong that's been done to us. They both force us kind of just to look backwards, and we have to keep looking forward. Now, whenever you're looking backward, it's not only what you're looking at, it also changes your perspective. Your perspective on reality becomes inverted. It's kind of like, you know, if you're moving backward in life, it's kind of like you're perceiving reality uh, like you're trying to read through a mirror. Have you ever tried to read words through a mirror? They're inverted. You just can't read it because the orientation is backwards. This is what happens with, with bitterness is, is people start backing their way into life, and it warps their perspective on life. Life just doesn't make sense to them because they're seeing it through bitterness. Because bitterness doesn't just turn you around. It also gives you a pair of glasses to wear. It gives you a lens to look at life through. And that lens, well, they're like sunglasses. They're tinted. And it uses the pain of the past to darken your perspective on the future. And because of this, bitterness doesn't just affect you. It does. But it also affects the people around you. That's why the Hebrews verse says, be careful that you don't miss God's grace, because if you miss God's grace, your bitterness is going to not just affect you, it's going to become a root, which means it's going to grow and expand, and all kinds of people are going to be defiled in this. It's going to cause all kinds of damage. The idea is this. If, if you're walking backward through a room, your chances of getting hurt go up. I mean, let's just say today you decide, you know what? I'm bored. I want to take a different approach to life. Let me walk backward to my car. I wouldn't recommend it, but if you do that, you're probably going to trip, you're probably going to fall, and you're probably going to bump into some people because you just can't perceive as well when you're walking backward. This is what happens is it not only causes more pain, it causes more pain in the lives of other people. So grace is God's preferred way of responding to the sin that we've done and the sin that's been done to us. Now, I say preferred because we have a role to play in this. We can choose to accept God's grace and apply it, or we can choose to not. We have to position ourselves properly to see and receive God's grace. So when we sin, we turn back, we confess it, and then we press on. We turn right back around with tremendous effort sometimes and thought focus, to look forward and see what it is that God wants us to do today. And then when wrong is done to us, we turn back, and if we can have a conversation to clear things up, great. Sometimes that's not available to us. Either way, we forgive the wrong that's been done to us, and then we look forward in the hope of what God's going to do, even 
through the pain of the past, how he's going to use that in the future. And we don't just do these things once. This is a repeated action. I mean, our life is kind of a constant looking back and then looking forward and looking forward and looking forward and then looking back and then looking. We just do this again and again and again. Now, the reset buttons of technology are usually pretty obvious. Sometimes there's actually a button that says reset on it. But the reset buttons for forgiveness and for bitterness are not so obvious. So Jesus gave us something tangible to do that reminds us to push the reset button of our past and accept his grace. This activity he gave us is called communion. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper because Jesus started this and told us to do this when he was celebrating the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples on the evening of his arrest before his crucifixion. So if you're joining us online, we're going to do this together here, but if you're joining us online, I would encourage you to go ahead and push the pause button so that you can go to the cupboard, maybe get some pieces of bread out and some juice so that you can participate with us. And then when you've got those items gathered, then just go ahead and push play and you can join us again. But here's the description of the night that Jesus started this practice. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the reason Jesus told us to do this was so that we could remember. The interesting thing about us is that while we can't seem to forget the wrong that we've done, or the wrong particularly that's been done to us, we seem to very easily forget the answer to sin the death of Jesus on our behalf. It just, we know the fact, but we forget to apply it in real time. So Jesus says, I want you to do this to remember me. And he gave us two very vivid ways to remember his sacrifice for us. The broken pieces of bread look a lot like the chunks of flesh that were ripped from the body of Jesus that day. Jesus was whipped before he was nailed to that cross And the Romans had come up with these whips that had chunks of glass and metal embedded in the ends of them, and so the whips would often tear chunks of flesh off of those that were being whipped, and that's what they did to Jesus. And then the red wine that Jesus took at the end of the Passover meal looked a whole lot like the blood that Jesus was going to pour out on that cross for us that day. So these are two very graphic, really, and and sober somber reminders of the death of Jesus. But this vivid reminder of his death was not to be the only memory that was triggered by this ritual. It's not the only thing that was designed to bring to mind. That memory of what Jesus did for us is designed to unlock the memory of what it's attached to, the why Jesus did it. The reason Jesus went to the cross is because of our sin. Sin is the great destroyer 
of relationships. It's the giant oil slick that we're all trapped in. It breaks our relationship with God, and then it breaks our relationship with each other. So if we do this ritual, and we remember what Jesus did for us, but we ignore and do not confess the wrong that we're doing, and we refuse to reconcile our relationships and forgive those who have wronged us, we dishonor the whole reason Jesus went to the cross. That's why the next few verses in Corinthians go on to say this, so then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this is saying that if, if we refuse to examine our lives before the, we do this, then we're at risk of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus disconnected from the whole point of that sacrifice. We're doing this in an unworthy manner. So this is saying you need to examine it. So this is the right way to look back. Before we partake of communion today, we're going we're to turn back. We're going to look back on our sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look back on the sin that's been done to us through that same sacrifice and forgive them. So I'm going to invite everyone to take a moment to do this. First, two things. Confess your sin to God. Be specific. You don't just say, you know, God, you know I'm a sinner. Sorry. Get specific. What, is there something that you've said, something that you've done that you need to confess? Confess that and accept the forgiveness that's readily there. And then the second thing is forgive those who have wronged you. If there's an opportunity for a conversation to try to clear things up, great. Purpose to do that at your first opportunity. But if there's not that opportunity, if it's one of those relationship knots that are all tied up and there's just no way to get it undone right now, then forgive. Move beyond the bitterness. So we're going to examine our hearts on this matter, look inside, look back, confess, forgive, and then we're going to remember what Jesus did for us as we begin this new year. So we're going to do this in silence. Uh, we're not going to play any music, so just silence. We might have the lumberyard joining us or Southwest Airlines might fly over, so we are outside. But let's just take a few moments to do this in your own heart, and then I'll lead us together as we partake in communion. So let's do this together. Go ahead and take out the little communion cups that should have been on your chairs when you got here today, and just peel back the first part of it, which gets at that little wafer of, of bread. And this is what Jesus said on that night 
with his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this together. Go ahead and peel back the next layer to get at the juice. At the end of the meal that night that he was betrayed, he stood up with a cup of wine and he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new agreement of forgiveness written in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we have paused to remember a sacrifice that's hard for us to even imagine. That first of all, you would take on a body like we just celebrated a few weeks ago at Christmas. You would humble yourself and do that, and then you would further humble yourself. You allow yourself to be arrested, falsely accused, and then nailed to a cross. And over six hours, you suffered until finally you said it was finished. And Father, your sacrifice that you planned for your son has purchased our freedom. Jesus, your body broken for us and your blood shed for us means that we can look back, not just in guilt, but in gratitude over your forgiveness. And we can look back, not in bitterness over the wrong that's been done to us, but in forgiveness, knowing that we have been forgiven much and therefore we can forgive much. So, Father, as we move into this new year, we pray that you would free us from the layers of guilt and the layers of bitterness that drag us down. And as we struggle with both of these in the days and weeks and months to come, we pray that you'd help us to turn back in confession, turn back in forgiveness, and then strain towards what is ahead and be a part of what you want us to do in this year. We thank you for the great chance to be free of what drags everyone down. And we pray this now in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.